you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Uh, this leading up to Christmas, we've been just looking at different uh, prophecies and promises, anticipating, uh, looking ahead to the, the coming of Christ. Uh, it's, I think, a good reminder to us, uh, or at least it's been a good reminder to me of the the unity of the Bible, the truthfulness of God's Word, uh, that's attested by the fact that all throughout the Old Testament there are these promises, these predictions, prophecies, that a Savior would come, and there's details about how He would come and what He would do as our Savior. And I hope that it's confirming to your faith to see the, the unity of the Bible as those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ uh, to, to the most specific detail. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you as you read your Bibles to see it as, as one unfolding story, the promise of God's redemptive work, his redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, his, historically, the, the church has set aside this season of the year. They often call it Advent. You don't have to call it that, but uh, we will often think about it as just a, a looking back to Christ's first coming, you know, just a time to remember that he was born in Bethlehem and so forth. But really, it's, it's a season of the year that the church has historically looked forward to the second coming of Christ. Because it's all one story. It's, it's all part of one redemptive plan of God to send a Savior, for that Savior to accomplish his work of redemption, for the Holy Spirit to bring us into union with Christ, to give us the gift of faith, to establish the church, and to give the church uh, all that she needs as she lives and bears witness to Christ in between the first and the second coming. Uh, of the Lord Jesus in glory. He came in humility, and one day he will come again in glory. And uh, these, these passages from the Old Testament remind us of that and remind us that it's all part of God's uh, one unfolding, unified plan, that he rules over all, and his word can be trusted. But with that in mind, would you, uh, are you welcome to remain seated as we read from Micah 5. I'll read uh, verses 1 through just the beginning of verse 5 of Micah chapter 5. Pay careful attention, this is God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word, for its truth. Thank you that uh, your word is breathed out uh, by you, that you used uh, men from of old to write down your words so that we can believe it and trust it and know that there is life in your word. So, Father, we pray that you would use your word to, today 
uh, to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. And Lord, we ask that you would help us in all things to see Jesus and to trust him. We pray it in his name. Amen. I suppose that some of you, uh, maybe over the past several weeks, spent a little bit of time watching uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, show. This is one of my favorites. Uh, Jeff mentioned a few favorites a few weeks ago. It's a wonderful life. Uh, There's lots of great Christmas movies that are fun to watch this time of year. Charlie Brown has a special place in, in my heart. It just It seems to kind of fire on all cylinders as far as Christmas shows go. It's one of the few, you probably know this, one of the few Christmas uh, series shows that aired on television that has an extended quotation from the Bible. I mean, you just don't find that uh, very often anymore, and Charlie Brown was one of those few that that had that, uh, maybe the only one. Uh, You know the story. In it, uh, Charlie Brown is the director of the local Christmas play, But he's struggling for various reasons, just being Charlie Brown. He kind of lives in the struggle box. Uh, But he's struggling to be the director of the Christmas play in part because he's struggling to understand the meaning of Christmas. He just doesn't quite get it. And as the story unfolds, we reach the the wonderful climax uh, of, of the show where this tension is resolved and the good news of Christmas comes from humble Linus who quotes directly from Luke 2 as he explains the meaning of Christmas. It's humble, it's clear, and Linus seems to be the perfect character to present it. With childlike simplicity, carrying his his blanket, his beloved blanket with him as he holds forth from the Bible the mystery and the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God. In Micah's prophecy that we've read here, we too have the good news of the incarnation, Uh, that God the Son became man in Jesus Christ. It's presented here in Micah 5 clearly and and humbly. The whole passage uh, highlights, in a sense, the unlikeliness and the unexpectedness of God's ways of redemption, at least according to human standards. But that's really the whole pattern. That's really the way that God works. He flips expectations upside down. We expect uh, salvation to come in kind of human shows of power uh, and glory and pomp and circumstance, and yet God redeems us through humility, through self-giving, sacrificial love, ways that kind of upend our expectations. He brings greatness out of insignificance, glory out of humility. He brings hope into the most abysmal despair and light out of darkness. And uh, Micah's prophecy shows that in in a wonderful way. Just to give you a little bit of context for when Micah is writing these things and kind of what's happening in the midst of this prophecy or as he's giving this, Micah was an 8th century prophet, so uh, going back B.C., 8th century is 700s. He's roughly contemporary with the prophet Isaiah, who kind of overshadows him because Isaiah has 66 chapters. Micah only has seven. Uh, But they were working, ministering at about the same time. And uh, as far as we can tell, Micah's writing these particular words kind of in the the late 700s. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been carted off into exile by the Assyrians, this kind of nasty, uh, brutal nation to the east. 
And those same Assyrians are now kind of literally banging on the gates of Jerusalem. The king Hezekiah is miraculously spared from this invasion, but they, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, will not too many years from there, about 150 or so, or a little less than that, they'll be carted off into exile as well into Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and all of that. But here, as Micah is writing this, God is bringing kind of foretaste of judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah, foreshadowing their future exile into Babylon. He's bringing judgment against them for their idolatry. Uh, they've, they've mingled the worship of God with the worship of idols and corrupted it and defiled it. He's bringing judgment against them for injustice and oppression of the poor. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and what's worse, the rich are seizing land from the poor, kind of taking advantage of their poverty and robbing from them land that God had promised to them as an inheritance. To add insult to injury, those who are in power, who are supposed to be leading with righteousness and uprightness and honoring the Lord and, and leading and ruling as God's representatives, they're not doing anything about it. They're uh, participating in this overarching corruption. So there's all kinds of things going on bringing uh, God's judgment against them. In Micah's prophecy, he tells them, you're going to be defeated. You're going to be taken off into exile. It doesn't happen immediately, but it's coming. And Micah tells them that their enemies have a plan to devastate them, to destroy them, to put them to shame, to defile them, but that God has a bigger plan in the midst of their despair. In the midst of this judgment, God is bringing salvation. He says, you're, you're going to be defeated. Your enemies are going to gloat over you, but I've got a bigger plan. I will rescue you because of my covenant love to you. And here in Micah 5, it kind of reaches a climax he promises that he will bring a savior from an unlikely place. And that savior, that shepherd king, the ruler in Israel, he will restore them to fellowship with God. He will bring in all of God's people, bring them back to restoration, uh, restore them to fellowship with God. He will lead them. He will give them security. He will be their peace. And as we consider this passage, we see three, three things I'd like to highlight for us about Jesus, who is the fulfillment of this promise. One, we see the humble arrival of Jesus, Bethlehem rather than Jerusalem and the thrones of Jerusalem. Uh, we are pointed ahead to the humbling salvation of Jesus, that he comes not with swords clashing, but he came and gave himself on a cross and rose again from the dead. Then finally, we see the promise of the loving leadership of Jesus, the shepherd who is also the king. So let's look first at the humble arrival of Jesus. Verse 1 kind of sets the stage. There's a siege coming against Jerusalem. But verse 2, Micah, the, the Lord through Micah, gives this promise, uh, a promise of a coming king. But notice the humble origins of this king. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Jerusalem is kind of the center of power. Jerusalem is under siege, but rescue will come from another place, from a humble place, from Bethlehem. 
In some senses, this is very surprising, and in another sense, it's not surprising. Uh, It's surprising because the king resides in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem. It's surprising because Bethlehem is so small. Uh, Notice Micah says, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. It, It was not even in the list of cities given to Judah when they entered into the land. It's so insignificant that Micah has to distinguish Bethlehem by the region that it's in. Bethlehem Ephrathah is just kind of the broader region where Bethlehem is to distinguish it from another Bethlehem uh, north of there. It it was so insignificant uh, of a place that Micah has to add all all of these things just to make clear where he's talking about. We get this sometimes. Uh, I don't know if you get this, those of you who live in York, if you travel outside of York and you're talking to somebody and they say, well, where are you from? You know, common conversation point. Uh, when, when we say we're from York, we, we typically, or at least I typically get one of two responses. The first response is kind of a, a puzzled look, particularly if we're not kind of in a nearby region, you know, York County. If we're outside of York County, often we get kind of a puzzled look. And so I have to say, it's the county seat of York County. It's right in the top middle of the state. And people still have a scratching kind of head look. And I say, it's right below Charlotte. And they go, oh, yeah, we know where York is. Or the other response, which is my favorite response, is people say, oh, New York. Because New York is special, right? Uh, <laughs> I say, no, 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 not New York, just York, South Carolina, not Pennsylvania even. Uh, it's an insignificant town if you're not from here. If you're from here, it's a very significant town. But if you're not, it's an insignificant town. You have to make clear where you're talking about. Even King Herod, in the days of Jesus' birth, even King Herod didn't remember, perhaps it's not surprising, but even King Herod didn't remember the prophecy that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. When the wise men from the east show up, Uh, in Jerusalem, and they tell Herod, we we saw the star uh, that that is the sign of this promised king and ruler, so we came to Jerusalem to find out where we should go. Herod's like, ah, you know, there's no king here, and he gets his chief priests and scribes, and he asks them, you know, where is this promised king? And they, they look it up, and they quote from Micah. You can see it in Matthew 2. They say, well, it's in Bethlehem. This is where the ruler will come who will shepherd God's people. So the wise men go on their way, and the star leads them to the house in Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary and Jesus are residing. It's surprising. Bethlehem seems to be of no significance. If it were a city today, or if we lived back then, however you put it, there'd be no stoplight. There wouldn't even be a dollar tree. We've got two. Bethlehem would have none. It was insignificant. And yet this is the place where the ruler will come, uh, where he will be born, where the one who will save and shepherd God's people, where he will arrive. It's a humble arrival. And yet in many ways, it's also not surprising. It's David's hometown. This is where Saul went to find Jesse and his sons, not any of the older, bigger, stronger, better looking sons, but the youngest son, the one who was out with the sheep to find David and anoint him as the next king. It's not surprising because it's David's hometown. And all the promises of the Messiah find their focus in this promise to David. One of your descendants will reign on your throne forever, and his kingdom and God's kingdom will line up, 
uh, and he will be the one who brings peace, and, and all the nations will come to him. God's promises find their focus in this promised son of David. So in, in another sense, it's no surprise that it's Bethlehem. This is the place where the ruler will arrive who will rescue God's people. David's line in Judah uh, and in Jerusalem, they were failing. They were not leading God's people the way he had called them to do. But a new king will rise from the root, from the stump of Jesse, all the way back to David's origins in Bethlehem. Jesus comes in humility. Uh, we, we talk about him being born in the cattle stall. That's probably not very accurate. It probably wasn't a cattle stall. It was probably a house. There was no room in the extra room. But he is born and placed in the manger where the cows would have fed. Uh, you would, would have been common to keep livestock in the house at that point, kind of on the lower level. It's a humble place however you cut it. Whether it's a stable or not doesn't matter. It's a humble city. Jesus comes in humility as the fulfillment of this promise. Born in Bethlehem, away from the centers of power in Jerusalem, away from the glory of the kings in Jerusalem, he's born in humility. But those humble beginnings veil an eternal and great glory. Notice Micah tells us that this one who will be ruler in Israel, his origin is from of old, from ancient days. This is kind of a, a, a pointer. Micah is, is pointing us to the fact that this one who is born in Bethlehem in a humble place is actually God himself. These are phrases that are used to describe God and his majesty. He is the ancient of days. He has no beginning and no, no end. He doesn't have an origin point like we do. And yet this, this ruler who will come will be both eternal and he will be born at a point in time. Another way to think about that is he will be both the, the son of God and the son of man. He will be both divine and human. He has humble origins, but those humble origins veil in eternal glory. He is both divine and human, veiled in flesh, as the hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, the last book in his series, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, at the center of kind of the final scenes of that book is this stable. And as the story comes to an end, uh, the, the Narnians and others enter into this stable, which has been kind of transformed into this portal into the, uh, you know, the, the greater Narnia. And so they go into this tiny little stable, and all of a sudden they're on this wide open plain with mountain ranges, and they can't quite figure it out. How did we go into this tiny stable, and yet it's this expansive landscape? Uh, and in that uh, confusion, Queen Lucy, Lucy Pevensey, one of the main characters, tells these others who are in the stable, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. Humble origins. You, Bethlehem, too small to be counted among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins, um, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Jesus is the one who comes with a humble arrival, and yet he himself is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Part of what this means for us is that 
Jesus coming in his humility uh, opens the door. He makes the way uh, flat and, and, and uh, clear for all to come to him. He is, he is a savior of all kinds of people. He's not so exalted in the thrones in Jerusalem that the common person can't come to him, uh, and yet he lowers himself. Uh, he, is, he is great, but he lowers himself so that all who desire to come to him can come. Jesus' humble origins means that he is a savior who is available to all who will come. He is accessible to all who will come to him in faith. Micah promises a savior, and Jesus fulfills that promise in his humble arrival in Bethlehem, announced by the angels, beheld by the shepherds. And yet notice also that uh, there is a humbling salvation that Jesus will go through in, uh, for, for, for us. Notice verse 3, there's kind of a parenthesis in the prophecy. Micah says, uh, therefore he, the Lord, shall give them up, send them into exile, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. At the very least, Micah's talking here about this kind of delay in salvation arriving. He's telling them there's going to be a ruler who's going to come, but it's going to happen a little bit later. You're going to be delivered over, given into exile, uh, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. It's a, kind of a metaphorical way of talking about their being in exile until the time is right for them to come back. But it's also pointing ahead to the birth of Christ. She who is in labor, kind of a, a nod to Mary giving birth to Jesus, but also a nod to the, the whole of Israel from whom the Savior would come. But the bigger picture is they're suffering, they're given over into exile, and then there is deliverance. They're brought back from exile. They're restored. And it's that pattern that we find repeated in Jesus' own work. Jesus comes. He's born in humility. He grows in the knowledge and wisdom and love of God. Uh, and then at a certain point in time, he gives himself over to this ultimate suffering on the cross. There's a, this period of suffering. He labors in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood as he anticipates uh, the cruelty of the cross, as he anticipates the very wrath of God that he will bear in his flesh on the cross. Uh, Jesus must suffer before he can bring our redemption. This pattern of suffering and deliverance is fulfilled in Christ. And, and it's a way of humility. It's a humble way of saving God's people which explains some of the confusion that Jesus' disciples had when Jesus said things like, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be delivered over to the priest, and they're going to put me to death, but I will rise again on the third day. And you remember Peter's response, his famous response to this. You know, far be it. That would never happen to you. And Peter even later thinking, you know, I won't even let it happen to you. But Jesus tells Peter in that moment, you know, get behind me, Satan. God's ways are not your ways, that the way of redemption comes through the utter humiliation of the one who is the Redeemer. Jesus has to go all the way through suffering, all the way through death, all the way through condemnation, the judgment of God placed upon him 
on the cross, alienation, separation from God in that, that moment of, of mystery where the whole sky turns black because the father turns his back on his own son as his son bears on himself all of our sin. And, and he cannot look upon the very thing that he hates because it's, it's on Jesus. In that moment, Jesus' suffering comes to this climax as he endures hell for us on the cross so that on the third day he might rise again from the dead as our great redeemer and bring us back to God, restore us into fellowship with him uh, through his own death and resurrection. Jesus comes in a humble way and he carries out his redemptive work in humiliation, submitting himself to the very law that he gave, submitting himself to cruel hands that, that he made, being hung on a cruel cross, the wood of which came from a tree of which he was the creator. Jesus humbles himself all the way to the cross, but then he is exalted. He is raised again on the third day as our great redeemer in order to bring us salvation. Notice finally the result of this redemptive work of Christ, verses 4 and 5. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus is our shepherd king who lovingly leads us. He's set here in contrast to all the kings who failed, all the line of David who did not fulfill the great promise that God had made to David. Jesus fulfills. He is the one who faithfully stands. He endures. He is steadfast. He is faithful. He does not falter when the pressure is on. He is the one who faithfully shepherds his flock, and he does it as he relies upon the Lord and does it for the glory of the name of the Lord, his God, so that as a result, we have security because of his greatness as our Redeemer. Verse 5 ends on this wonderful note as we consider the result of the work of Jesus. Verse 5 says, he shall be their peace. Literally, it just says, he shall be peace. What a wonderful name to summarize the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his humility gave himself up for us. Isaiah tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That shall be his name. Micah here tells us that he himself is peace. When the angels show up and announce to the shepherds the birth of Christ the Lord, they proclaim peace on earth to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. Paul, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, tells the church and us there that Jesus is our peace as he breaks down the division caused by sin between us and God and between all people groups. Christ tears those things down and he brings peace vertically and horizontally in himself. Paul later tells us in Colossians that in Jesus, we are reconciled to God who made peace through his cross. And it is this message of peace through Jesus Christ that the early church preached even in the book of Acts. Micah's prophecy, uh, if you can think about it like this, is kind of like a, a time bomb. At least this is the way I thought about it. Uh, Micah, Micah plants this prophecy. He, he sets it, 
And then in the fullness of time, after a long period of waiting, 700 years of waiting, in the fullness of time, this, this time bomb explodes. It, it erupts in the most humble of places in Bethlehem. And as it does, all of these connected promises that have been made and anticipated throughout the Old Covenant, all of them kind of come into being in Jesus Christ, or they come to their fulfillment in Jesus. There's this web of connected promises all finding their fulfillment in Christ. It's in Bethlehem. He's a divine ruler. He is also a human born of a woman. He's a descendant of David. He is a shepherd. He is a savior. He is indeed our peace as he carried in himself our sin, conquering it through his self-giving love on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on the third day. So as we remember his first coming, as we look forward to his second coming, uh, may we rejoice that our Savior came in humility, gave himself in a humbling way, and now lovingly leads us as our shepherd and king as we anticipate his return in glory. And may we find hope and contentment and joy in this one who is our peace as we carry that same message to others, that Jesus Christ brings peace through his cross. Would you pray with me?